Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. In our lifetime, we spend about 25 years asleep, and for at least six of these years, we are dreaming. Dreams have fascinated philosophers for thousands of years, but only very recently, dreams have become the subject of scientific study. I'm certain that most of you who are listening have often wondered about your dreams, where they come from, what they mean, and why you dream at all. My guest today has answers to these questions, and some of them are as surprising as they are enlightening. Ian Wallace is a psychologist who specializes in dreams and dreaming. He's widely acclaimed in the media for his live dream analysis, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of dreams and the dreaming process. In his over 30 years of experience of putting his learning into successful practice. Since graduating in psychology, Ian has analyzed hundreds of thousands of dreams for his clients during his professional career as a dream psychologist. As the author of the best-selling dream books, The Top 100 Dreams, and The Complete A to Z Dictionary of Dreams, he has increased public awareness of the value of dreams and sleep and how to actually make practical use of them. Ian's experience and insight from this work leads him to believe that exploring our dreams is the most powerful and accessible way to realize what we want in life and how to achieve it. Ian is the originator of the Dream Connection Process, a unique and powerful method that enables anyone to connect the imagery and symbolism that they create in their dreams to situations and opportunities in waking life where they can use this awareness to make a difference. He uses the dream connection process with even the scariest and most disturbing nightmares so that the dreamer can identify positive actions to take in waking life that will help them connect with their deepest hopes and aspirations. As Ian says to his clients, a dream is just a dream until you put it into action. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Ian, welcome to the Superhumanized Podcast. It's such a pleasure to be able to spend some time with you today. Thank you, Ariana. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to exploring our dream. Absolutely. A topic that has fascinated me ever since I was a child and does to this day. I've heard you talk about in an interview, you were saying that a dream is the ultimate selfie what exactly yes. does that mean yeah it's very interesting because the one of the things that uh, when people work with dreams in a conventional way they think it's all about what happens inside your head mm-hmm. and, they, and they try and guess what's inside your head whether you're trying to do it as a, a scientist or perhaps from a more mystical perspective but if you turn that around which is always a very interesting thing to do and look at it from the other way it's far more interesting to see how our dream imagery and symbolism 
manifests outsider. Uh, and one of the things that has happened in recent years with the advent of very handy portable cameras in our phones is that it's very easy to take a self-portrait. And this is how the selfie has come about. So lots and lots of people have been taking selfies. I mean, of course, centuries ago, people would paint self-portraits, but that took a bit longer. And you, you couldn't really do that in a restaurant when you're out with your mates. So the idea of the self-portrait is it's something that, that is absolutely fundamental to human self-awareness. And so we've done this for centuries, all the way 32,000 years ago, from the cave paintings in Chauvet-Pont d'Arc in the Ardèche in southern France, and in Altamira in Spain, up to the present day. We're trying to catch that reflection of who we are, what we need, and, and what we believe. And in the idea of the, the dream being the ultimate selfie is the, the author of the dream is yourself, it's the self. People have this misconception that dreams happen to them, like you just lie there passively somehow tuning in to some etheric supernatural being that beams you messages uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that dreams don't happen to you, you happen to the dream and, and you create everything you experience in the dream. And what you create in the dream is a portrait of yourself, it's an image of yourself. And the reason it's an image of yourself is a dream is how you imagine yourself, all the different aspects of yourself. And it's always a call to action. Each one of those images that you generate in your dream is an invitation for you to engage with it and find out more about your deeper self and to explore that in a wider and broader way. That is fascinating. And it's also interesting, a lot of um, us, myself included, and I also am certain a lot of people in the audience are actually on a path of self-discovery. That's also what we do here on Superhumanize. It's trying to optimize the human experience. And a big part of that is to really know oneself in a deeper level. However, a lot of people are also very scared of that and they do everything they can to actually run from that. So what is the healthiest and most optimal way to deal with a dream, especially when it's a reoccurring type of dream that some of us may have had for forever, as long as we can remember? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting language you use there, Ariana. The, the idea of dealing with something like it's a chore, like it's a job to do it. Uh, and you don't really have to deal with it. You have to engage with the imagery that you're generating. And it was interesting also you said that people feel like they uh, might be running away from doing this. And that's actually the most common dream. The number one dream all around the world is being chased. Yes. And, the, and again, in terms of how I work with dreams and how contemporary psychologists work with dreams. We don't do any of the, the kind of pointy hat woo stuff that mystics might do or the scientific stuff. What we actually do is work with language and particularly linguistic imagery. So when you have a dream of being chased, when you create that dream, another word for being chased is pursuit. So this is all about a pursuit, something you're pursuing in waking life, some ambition, some hope, some desire, some aspiration. And the reason you create that dream is you are following that pursuit, but there is something challenging you or frustrating you. And the same thing happens in waking life, that it's so easy to run away from your potential. It's so easy to run away from opportunity. It's far easier to protect yourself in some sort of psychological refuge than it is to go out prospecting for what you could actually do with your life. So in terms of actually engaging with your dreams rather than just dealing with them, 
And the first thing to do is to just be aware that you're dreaming. Because a lot of people say, oh, I don't dream. Mm-hmm. But just realize that it's a natural human function. We all dream for about two hours per night. We spend a twelfth of our lives dreaming. And it's not some passive thing. It's actually, if you look at an fMRI scan of someone dreaming, the brain is absolutely illuminated. Just about every part of the brain is involved in the dreaming process because what we are doing is trying to understand who we are and to create that self-portrait. There's also a misconception. It's a kind of a Jungian Freudian thing that people think that dreams are all about past experience, that particularly the Freudian thing was the dream was just a distillation of the previous day's experience. But the reality is, as you said, about people having recurring dreams their whole life is we use all of our past life experience. And most importantly, what we do is we project that into the future. So dreams are not just about past experiences, they're actually about future expectations. And that's the key thing we do with our dreams when you engage with them, is trying to understand that you're not just distilling the past, you're exploring the future. And again, linguistically, the word dream has two meanings in our language. It means these nightly phenomena that we all create, but also means our deepest desires and greatest ambitions in waking life. And we tend to think of them as separate things, but actually they're the same thing. Mm, Beautiful. Uh, Thank you for pointing out. I think language and words are so important. They really hold power. And thank you for pointing out that I actually use the word to deal with. I really Mm -hmm. like the way uh, you talk about it, engaging with our dreams. That's a very different place. I will keep that in mind. And uh, for example, you mentioned being chased as uh, a pursuit is very common. Of course, I lit up because like probably pretty much everyone who's listening right now, I could relate to that. If I may bring up a particular type of being chased dream that I've been having since, I guess, ever since I was a young adult. So for over 20 some years now, it's getting chased and it's getting chased by beings. It could be zombies. It's not about the zombies. It's about, Mm -hmm. it's about creatures or things that I am not able to communicate with them at all. I can't reach them. So all they have in mind is chasing me, destroying me, killing me, whatever it is. And I'm running. And it's always tied to this. I cannot, I absolutely have no way to even start communicating with them. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So when we dream of being chased, it's about pursuing something, just to Mm -hmm. recap on that. And a dream, um, it's quite a, a common dream for someone in your position to to have that. And the reason for that is any dream involving a zombie, again, we we go back to, you know, what do do zombies, what's the linguistic image? And what a zombie is, if you think about it, is uh, something that's trying to eat your brain. That's what what zombies live on. Uh, And a zombie is something that's also in that liminal zone between being dead and not dead. So creative people like yourself, Ariana, often have this type of dream of being pursued by some sort of zombie because they are they feel, and usually unconsciously, that they have to try and kill off part of their creativity in order to please other people. Mm. And, and that might be uh, their parents, it might be peers, it might be a partner, it might be a social group, but the anti-zombie is someone who uses their brain uh, and brings things to life, who breathes life into them. And when you have that feeling that they are trying to kill you, then 
what you're actually doing in waking life, the self-portrait that you are imagining creating is of some situation in waking life where you feel some tension and some concern that you are being forced or influenced to kill off some very creative part of yourself. And because there are a number of these zombies, then it means that you have a number of creative ideas that other people are perhaps frowning on as you try to pursue them. Yes, that is brilliant. And that really struck a chord with me, Ian, completely. And I'd never even thought about it in that way. That This type of dream analysis actually gives us some really fantastic tools to take from our dreams into real life and start tackling these, these issues, these desires. It's really amazing. And you, you actually wrote the best-selling book, The Top 100 Dreams. And we just yes. spoke about this very common dream, which is getting chased, and in my case, mm. by zombies. And in, in your book, what are the top three most common dreams that you've come across, and what do they mean? In a moment of relentless self-promotion here, Ariana, I'm just going to see if I can find a copy of it over here. Yes, please. Uh, uh, just to wave around for our lovely viewers and listeners. This is even more and more. This is the, the French version of it. Wonderful. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so the most common dream is being chased. The second most common one is uh, problems with your teeth. Ah. Yeah, people have this one a lot. And again, it's really, really interesting that one of the challenges of, of working with dreams as a psychologist in the 21st century is there are so many old wives' tales and misconceptions and all sorts of untruths about dreams, things that don't really happen. People, and people often do this to me when I, I'm we're talking about dreams or someone knows that I sometimes work with dreams. It will say, oh, the, the teeth falling out one, it means that you're worried about losing money or you're worried about uh, old age or uh, someone said you're worried about horses and perhaps. In some cultures, dreaming of having any teeth issues suggests that an elderly relative might be close to passing on. Mm -hmm. So there's all these things. And again, we just come back to not what is the tooth, but what does the tooth mean? Mm -hmm. And so the, and again, we, we do this in a, in a very proprioceptive way. We do it in a very physical way. It's when in waking life do people show their teeth? And they do it on two main occasions. One is when they are smiling, mm -hmm. so they're happy and confident. And the other one is when they're snarling a little bit, when they're asserting themselves, when they're baring their teeth. So what your teeth actually mean symbolically is power and confidence. And so if you create a dream where you're having issues with your teeth, then there's some situation in your waking life where you feel that your feelings of power and confidence are being challenged in some way. And again, we hear it in the language that people often say, when the dream, my teeth were crumbling. And we talk about confidence crumbling. And, and again, we have all these idioms around teeth. So I'll have to go and chew that over. Or he did it by the skin of his teeth. Or I can't wait to sink my teeth into that. So we've got all these things about power and confidence. And so people, when you have that dream, what, what do you do with it? Because a dream is just a dream until you put it into action. So you have that, that dream where your teeth are falling out or they're loose or they're crumbling. You need to do something. You need to put that into action in waking life. Uh, and the best thing you can do is whatever situation, you just ask yourself, what situation in my waking life is making me feel a bit powerless and where I'm losing my confidence a little bit? 
and you identify that situation and then you say to yourself, you create the intention, the next time I'm in that situation, I am going to show up feeling more powerful and more confident. Even though I feel a little bit wobbly inside, like a wobbly tooth, I'm still going to show up feeling confident and powerful and assert that power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love what you just said, that a dream is just a dream until you put it into action. And you mentioned it before, that a dream is also a call to action. I think that is such a beautiful way of uh, putting it and putting it to good use. And what is the third most common dream? The third one, uh, quite often I, I smile in uh, what could be termed quite a serious psychological situation. It's just a smile of recognition because this one, Ariana, is uh, if I'm out at, you know, doing, doing a lecture or uh, some sort of gathering or some sort of party, quite often afterwards, I'll get someone sidling up to me and say, I've got, I have this really embarrassing dream and I'm sure no one else has it. In fact, I'm not really sure I should tell you about it. And I'll say, is it the toilet dream? <laughs> and they say, oh, how do you know that? How do you know that? You must be psychic. And I go, I don't think there are psychics, but I can tell you what the toilet dream means. So again, we just have to think what toilets symbolize. So the toilet or, or the bathroom is a place that you go to get rid of things that you no longer need, that are no longer nourishing for you. It's a place you go to refresh yourself, to cleanse yourself. It's a place that is very private is a place that you go to to attend to your needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, working with language, that's the, the key verb that we use around this is needing the toilet. I need to find the bathroom. I'm needing the bathroom. So this is all about attending to your needs. And it's very common amongst people who spend a lot of their time looking after the needs of others, but mm-hmm. never really attending to their own. And also because the, the bathroom is a private area, then this is all about, in waking life, the action from this dream is about establishing personal boundaries. And the easiest way to establish a personal boundary is to use a very simple two-letter word, and that word is no. So if someone is continually hitting on you to get you to help them to look after their needs, and it means that you don't look after your own needs, sometimes you just need to say no. And in that saying no in waking life, you lock the bathroom door in your dreams, and you have that private time to yourself. Wonderful. And also such a important insight, Ian. So many people are caught up in being people-pleasing. I certainly have experienced it myself. And it can run you down. It can really wreak havoc on your mental and also your physical health. I had a guest, uh, Dr. Zoe Chance, and she actually her students, she actually advises to do an experiment for 24 hours to say, just say no. Of course, not in a ridiculous way. If somebody said, I need the EpiPen, I just got stung by a wasp, you don't say no. But, but you just say no. And you realize it's actually much, much less terrifying than you think. And then most people are actually okay. If you say no, they'll just go and ask somebody else. But to start establishing healthy boundaries is so important. I found it really interesting also that you said that a lot of people are embarrassed. They bring it up to you. Oh, it's so embarrassing. I don't even know the basic human functions, even if we talk about relieving ourselves, or I'm sure you also encounter a lot of dreams that are related to sex. And that causes us so much and discomfort to bring these things up that are so deeply human and so natural. That alone 
is very telling about the kind of culture we're moving in, right? Yes, and it is. It's another very common dream. And I have to say, it seems to be the major cause of upper arm bruising in spouses is dreaming that your partner is having an affair. And very often the dreamer will wake up in the morning and bash their spouse or their partner on the arm. What are you doing with the other person in my dream? What was going on? Are you having an affair? Oh my God, it's a disaster. And again, it's, it's, it's nothing to do with that reality. We always have to understand the difference between the imagined and the real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although they're deeply connected at an unconscious level, the, it, it doesn't transfer straight through into waking life like that. So if you dream that your partner is having an affair, then again, we have to think like, so what does that actually mean? What does it actually symbolize? And the anything to do with sex is, is re- very rarely to do with sex in waking life. So sex in a dream, it's usually nothing to do with sex in waking life. We have to think what sex means. So Another word for sex or the formal psychological word that I might use in a client session is procreation. Mm-hmm. So it's all about being able to create something. So sex dreams are very really to do with sex, but they're a lot to do with your sense of creativity. And the other aspect of sex that makes it so important to have that privacy and intimacy is sex is a very intimate and intense experience. So when you create a sex dream, then there's something in your waking life where you are becoming intensely aware of your power of creativity, your ability to conceive an idea, your ability to plant a seed of a project or a plan. So when you dream that your partner's having an affair, there's a situation in your waking life where you uh, feel very powerful about some creative idea, but you are letting your own self down by not following it through not taking it to its logical conclusion, to its climax. So in doing that, this dream is all about not betraying yourself. It's about having confidence in yourself again. It's about not letting yourself down and letting your own desire down rather than being concerned that your partner might be having. Mm. And speaking about this, because you just underlined that it doesn't mean this is happening in real life. What do you think about people who are claiming to have prophetic dreams and not even just individuals, but there are certain cultures where dreaming and that dreams mean that certain things may happen in the future is quite common practice. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting area, Ariana. So there are a number of issues here and I, I may go wandering off a tangent if I do just feel free to reel me back in with it. But the uh, in terms of prophetic dreams, then just about every spiritual practice on earth originated in a prophetic dream. Certainly all the Abrahamist religions come from prophetic dreams. Uh, a lot of Eastern religions and spiritual practices do. So dreams are always at the core of the, uh, these visions. Uh, and there are um, a number of other areas we can explore around that. But the, the other side of it is that, for example, the 16th most common dream around the world is an aircraft crash. Mm. And again, it's got nothing to do with an actual aircraft crash. What an aircraft symbolizes, it's a vehicle of the sky. And the sky symbolizes thoughts and ideas. So an aircraft is how you get an idea off the ground, how you launch an idea and how you land it safely and successfully at some point in the future. That's what an airplane symbolizes. 
So if you create that aircraft crashing dream, there's a situation in your waking life where you're trying to get an idea off the ground or you have, you've got a project in mid-flight and you're concerned that it may not have the successful conclusion that you had hoped for, that you had planned for. Mm-hmm. But when the unfortunate occurrence of an aeroplane actually crashing in real life happens, I get hundreds of people writing to me saying, oh, I dreamt that was going to happen. That is So that sort of prophetic dream uh, doesn't really stack up. But we said earlier that dreams are not just about past experiences, they're about future expectations. So we all in some way dream of the future, but we don't dream it in actual real terms. We, we tend to dream uh, on usually uh, maybe three or four days into the future. That's where we're exploring with that. And if we are in a more profoundly emotional place, if we are following, say, some spiritual practice or on some retreat, then our dreams may go years into the future. So that's what we're exploring. So in terms of these precognitive or prophetic dreams, then there may be something there, and it would be amazing if there was. Uh, But in reality, there are some really strong psychological explanations for why they may not be occurring. Mm-hmm. You said something very interesting also just a few minutes ago about how some of the world's major religions are actually founded upon or centered around dreams, prophetic dreams. Yes. So the importance of dreams and the influence on humanity cannot be emphasized too much. Our cultures, our societies run on dreams. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? And whether these are dreams during sleep or during a mystical experience or waking dreams, it seems like this is really the fuel of most of what we do. Yes. So the in that, from a psychological perspective, then there were some studies done in the 1970s in the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, by a professor, Benjamin Liebe. And he did some uh, very interesting experiments. because he was interested in the human unconscious. Mm -hmm. So people very often talk about the subconscious, and that's a Jungian Freudian term. Uh, And people use it as this kind of mystical psychoscape that, you know, people venture into, here be dragons, we're not quite sure what happens in the subconscious. But the idea of the unconscious is quite simple. It's everything that you're not consciously aware of. So what Benjamin Liebe did was he wanted to see how much information the conscious mind and the unconscious mind actually engaged with. And so he had a a whole number of volunteers. It was a large sample size, but he found that consciously uh, a typical human being in the course of one minute would process 40, so four zero pieces of information per minute. And those are things like, oh, it's quite warm in here. I wonder what I'll have for dinner. Oh, the sun's come out again and all those sorts of things. But he found unconsciously a typical human being processes between 10 million and 11 million pieces of information. And various other people like uh, George Lakoff and Stanislas Dehan and Rudolfo Linas have also explored this. And George Lakoff reckons very conservatively, George is not a conservative, he's a wonderful liberal, but very conservatively with a small c, that it's about 98% of human awareness is unconscious. 
And it's probably far more than that. So even as you and I are having this wonderful conversation, Ariane, and our viewers and listeners are viewing and listening, we're only consciously aware of about 2% of what is actually happening in Mm. our waking life. So this whole unconscious area is what naturally happens in our dreams. So the language that we use to create these ultimate self-portraits is the language of the unconscious. And the unconscious is absolutely jam-packed full of images. Mm-hmm. It's just and everything in all our arts, all our spiritual practices, everything that makes us human is all based on this really intense emotional imagery. Because people tend to think of dreams as a stream of, of images, but they're actually also a flow of emotions. Mm-hmm. And we use these images, our dream images, to actually describe emotions. So, and we see this in waking life as well. So if you were angry with me, Ariana, and you said, Ian, I'm angry with you, I'd think, well, oh, you're, you're just a bit disappointed. But if you say, Ian, I'm absolutely fuming with you, I'll think, oh, you're on fire with anger. Or Ian, working with you is like banging my head off a brick wall. Then if you said those things, then that's a really powerful image. So the main way we express our emotions in waking life as well as in our dreams is through imagery. So that's that 98%, that whole area of the unconscious, it's all images. And those can be visual images, they can be audio, they can be haptic, they can be olfactory, but all these images are what we use to express our unconscious self and they come out naturally when we create our dreams at night. And images, of course, you could also say symbols, right? In a sense. Yes. Yeah. So so the symbol is what really connects the image to reality. The the original idea of the word symbol comes from the the Greek symbolon. And a a symbolon was was usually something of value, usually Mm -hmm. a bone or a coin that was broken in half. And one half was given as like an identity token to someone, and the other half was kept. So when someone else came back with the other half, then they could be identified of being as that was their true identity. So the symbol connects the image, the imagined to the real. Beautiful. And what really fascinates me as well, I have heard about that before, but hearing it again and the numbers are just so staggering every time it still boggles my mind. The millions of different things that our subconscious actually processes versus our conscious. Yes. And in your perception, I think there's a lot of different theory, theories, a lot of different scientists looking at this. Why do you think that the majority of of what we actually process, what we take in from the world takes place as taken in by the subconscious versus the conscious. Is it a protective mechanism? So we just don't, uh, our brain just doesn't fry. Is it to help us make function better? Or are we just some robots that are short circuited and don't run on our focus? It could be all of those. But the, the fundamental reason is that that 2% is mainly men. So there are a number of different ways of describing human experience. But one of the the classic ways, uh, one of the most fundamental ways is to think of uh, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Uh, And we see this in all sorts of practices and all sorts of mysticism. We see it in things like the medicine wheel or the the various 
aspects and things that you see in things like astrology and tarot and I Ching. So we always come back to these kind of the idea of four elements and the four humors. And most of what happens consciously is mental. And it's not 2%. And even though I think we're really busy with our thoughts and our thoughts are who we are and all that sort of stuff, it's really 2% of who we are. But the 98% is a really important part. And it's that emotional and spiritual part. And it can be very hard to express our emotions and spirituality in waking life. And it's like in your dream of being pursued by the zombies, you were finding it very hard to communicate. So you may find that even someone as erudite and as articulate as you are, then you might find it hard to communicate how you really feel about something uh, and what you, in the sense of your emotions and what you feel is beyond in the sense of your spirituality. So that whole part of how we understand and explore our unconscious, it's not like it's um, a ghost in a machine or, or any of those sorts of things. It's, it's what it means to be human mm-hmm. is that we are fundamentally emotional and spiritual with this quite thin layer of, of mental and physical kind of on top. So it's not really trying to protect ourselves. We do try and protect our emotions and our spirituality because it is something that's very intimate and it can make us feel vulnerable. Uh, and that's why when people uh, mix their beliefs with their needs, when they try and impose an ideology or a particular religious credo on someone else, that can be very comfortable that you need to believe what I believe, because mm. if you don't, then it reduces the power of my own belief. But exactly. what, your dream, what your dreams are doing is to say, these, these are your actual beliefs, and these are the ones you should go with, rather than feeling you have to subscribe to someone else's belief. That's also always something that has been the cause for a lot of thought. So if somebody truly and deeply believes in something, and think everybody ought to be free to believe whatever they wish, whatever makes them fulfilled and happy. And what you said, that's true. If something is so centered and anchored within me, then why would I have the need to impose it on somebody else? And whether that's my religious belief, whether that's my life philosophy, the greatest unhappiness I think is often caused when we try to impose our idea of happiness on others, especially when we try to do so by force, whether it's psychologically or actually even physically. And that sense of not having this inner peace and this solid believing in what we claim to believe, we carry this war that we carry in the inside to the outside, often resulting in some of the greatest man-made catastrophes in human history. Yeah, that, that's, that's beautifully put. That's exactly what happens, that internal tension in an individual, unless they are resolved somehow, often result in major wars. Yes. And I mean... Uh, Yeah, go ahead. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, yeah. So we do see this happening, and not just on a, a larger global scale, but in individuals as well, that I used to do, I still do a bit of relationship counseling. And then, and and very often it's the conflict is not between the two people or however many people who are in the relationship. Somebody has an internal conflict, which they, well, Freud and Jung said projecting, which is like shining on, but it's more that you actually locate that conflict in someone else and you see them as a source of the conflict that's actually inside you. So you try and resolve it by putting them into conflict rather than actually in your dreams. In your dream, you probably have... Uh, a conflict dream where you're battling your way through a war zone or you're in some 
life and death battle with a far superior opponent who, again, is part of you. So all those ideas of engaging with conflict, then uh, in your dreams is a very good place to do it. And it's not just conflict like thinking, oh, I wonder what I'll have for lunch today. Shall I have this or shall I have that? But it's, it's thinking of those wider things of, am I asking too much of someone else? Are they asking too much of me? Where are the boundaries between us? Where can we connect? How can we connect at a profounder level? How can we share our emotions truly? How can we connect spiritually? Mm -hmm. So all those parts of it, then it comes back to, as you said at the start of our conversation about knowing yourself and, and not just knowing the nice parts of you, not all the Instagrammy parts of you, but knowing all those things about your worries, your fears, your desires, your conflicts, your tensions, the things that make you feel uncomfortable for no reason at all. Yes, and that can be a scary place. However, it's also such a rewarding place to go into because the things that we repress will continue to inform and sometimes, oftentimes, also continue to direct our life. That's, of course, uh, Jungian, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. so Jung called uh, this uh, the shadow. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, And again, so uh, Jung did some great stuff, and I know it sounds very patronizing, from a, a psychologist sitting here in Scotland. But the reality is that psychology moves on and working with dreams moves on. So Jung called it the shadow. He objectified it and reified it. But the reality is you have multiple shadows. And these shadows are illuminated and created by different light sources in your life. Mm -hmm. So rather than trying to work with this shadow and try and expunge it and completely remove it from your life, it's far more interesting to, to work like a, a photographer or a stage lighter and think, right, what is casting that shadow? And you need the shadows in there because they give you a, a chiaroscuro, that sense of depth, that sense of emotional and spiritual depth. But you have to think, right, what is casting that shadow? Why am I getting in the way of that shadow? What is the light source? And how can I adjust that light source uh, to make that shadow less scary or more appealing or make it beautiful, to make it a beautiful shadow, to make it look like an Ansel Adams photograph? Yes. Beautiful. And also, I think it's really important to recognize that these shadows are aspects of ourself, sometimes twisted aspects, but aspects of ourselves that uh, want to protect us. What is this dark part of myself that I don't like and repress this part that wants to tear somebody's throat out and exterminate them. It's actually protective of my needs and desires. We don't like it when it comes up, so we repress it. It's, I find it very healthy to actually sit with it and uh, yeah, just invite it to, for tea, sit with it, chat with it, find out what it's about instead of running from it or just suppressing it, which just pushes it deeper in the shadows and makes this whole thing bigger and darker and scarier. I really like the speaking about language and there's words that you keep using the emotional and the spiritual aspects of ourselves. And just a little while ago, uh, we talked about how the larger part of ourselves and we talked about the subconscious is the emotional and the spiritual. I'd like to hear about your take on a lot of people are now doing work with compounds or medicinal plants. Some of them are legal, others are not legal, or depending where in the world you are, they're legal or not legal, but let's leave that aside. So people that are have the desire to know more about 
themselves and their subconscious and that work with certain substances. I have friends who've tried ayahuasca. I myself have tried ketamine treatment, which is actually completely legal as long as, as it's prescribed in the US. And what I found profoundly not only interesting, but healing was that I was put in a dissociative state where I had the sense of my conscious connecting with my subconscious. And I was able to access a lot of information in images and symbolism and emotions that I usually do not have access to when I'm just operating from this mental state. And in my personal experience, it actually helped me reveal some of the root causes of I had been dealing up until that point with anxiety for a large part of my adult life. And it also helped me reframe and actually heal some of these root causes. This just as an example, but I would like to hear your take on the this wave, this resurgence of people working with substances that can dissolve the limit between the conscious and the subconscious. Yeah, so in my practice, I advise, um, not against that, but I would suggest that there are other ways and, and the fundamental ways to work with your dream. Because, And I'm not just saying that because I work with dreams, but the reason for that is that the dream is the most natural and organic method to achieve that dissociative state. Mm -hmm. to actually because that's what happens in your dreams you dissociate from your mental state your mental self and you start to um, dissolve those boundaries that's what happens as soon as you start dreaming all those boundaries dissolve and all those things that may have been causing you anxiety and feeling that they were lurking in the shadows they will present themselves you will present them to yourself and and the reason i say that ariana is that um a number of clients I have do use psychoactive substances and they find some benefit from it, but sometimes they also find some things that are not so good with it. Uh, and where I'm going with this is I think fundamentally, it's like what we're saying towards the start of the conversation is that you can try and work with your brain and yourself and your soul and your spirit from the outside in by using religion, by using psychoactive substances, by using various practices, by going to a dojo or an ashram, or you can work from the inside out by using your dreams. Uh, and that's, it's a harder thing to do because it's not, it doesn't seem such an immediate thing. So rather than uh, taking a tab or, or going to some spiritual event where you feel that you are quite passive in that and you feel that the substance of the event is doing the heavy lifting for you, you have to turn it the other way around. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier is that people tend to think that dreams happen to them, mm -hmm. that when you take that psychoactive substance, that experience happens to you. But it's far more powerful to think, I am creating this experience. And I'm not just creating it because I have a psychoactive substance or I'm at this particular religious event i am creating this and the and that might seem quite vague and quite mysterious but every night when we go to sleep and when we wake up we are very briefly in that liminal state that is often referred to as lucid dreaming mm -hmm. where your where your boundaries dissolve and you have the opportunity at that point to actually engage with your imagery your unconscious imagery and start to do something with it 
And it doesn't have to be something really grand or amazing. It's a really simple thing. It's the same thing that I would do when I'm doing guided visioning or hypnotherapy with my clients. Mm -hmm. If a tree suddenly appears in your self-generated imagery, just make it bigger, make it smaller, make it further away, make it closer, make it greener, make it darker. And in doing that, you actually realize you have the power to shape and control that image. And then you can take that same feeling because it's a really powerful transcendental feeling. You can take that same feeling into waking life and think, mm -hmm. how can I influence this situation? How can I shape it? How can I make myself feel less anxious? Even better, how can I make myself feel more anxious? Because if I make myself feel more anxious, then I can dial it back and be less anxious. Mm -hmm. And now I start to have control over my anxiety. So this is a very long answer to quite a short question. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the way I like to work is to do it really completely naturally, completely mm -hmm. cleanly and organically, uh, and just working with the brain's own psychoactive substances. Mm -hmm. I think that's an absolutely wonderful approach. I also wish I would have known you a long time ago to also use the modalities that you employ uh, for healing. I think that's an absolutely important, valid, necessary, and beneficial for countless people approach. For my own experience, I have to say that, for example, the experience with ketamine helped me resolve things that prior to that, even with a lot of self-work, self-knowledge, other forms of healing, I was not able to reach. We actually have in the US quite a few people that come from the psychiatric or background or, or psychologists who now also employ that as a tool, because mm -hmm. in many cases, it can just help speed a process up, especially for people who have been dealing with long-standing issues or traumas. Actually, here in the US, for example, the VA, the Veterans Association, has yes. also used, this is particular to ketamine, yeah. used it for people who have treatment-resistant PTSD or depression. Every tool has its use. Nothing is a panacea for everyone. I, and again, I really wish I would have had access to you because it's such an empowering thing to know that once you're given the knowledge and the tools that you have, which actually I recommend and I'm going to do some completely shame-free promotion for your book, for actually for your Thank book. Thank you. Here is when you have these tools, you can to, and to employ them and the feeling of empowerment that you get when it comes from the inside versus taking something on from the outside is amazing. With regard to lucid dreaming, though, this is something that has fascinated me for a long time. I loved what you just shared with the example of the tree to make it larger, smaller, is it closer, farther? There are other, there's in certain cultures, for example, they use certain herbs to induce or have longer periods of lucid dreaming. I know in the Amazon, they use an herb called bobinsana, which mm -hmm. they also call very heart opening. So you have very pleasant experience of lucid dreams from the Western European traditions and used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Of course, carefully <laughs> is mugworth as with any herbs or any medicine. All You always want to make sure that it's actually something you can take. Where do you get it from? How much do you take? Talk to your doctors. But so lucid dreaming, how can we actually become able to better remember dreams? 
And how can we strengthen our capacity to lucid dreaming? You mentioned the one practice with the tree. Are there other things you could share with us? Yeah, so you mentioned two things there, Ariana. One is remembering your dreams, and another one is lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. So, so very briefly, as I said earlier, a number of people, often men, say, oh, I don't remember my dreams, I just don't dream. So they say, I don't dream, but it's a biological, it's a neurological necessity to dream. So if you want to remember your dreams and you have difficulty doing that, all you have to do is remember three words. And those three words are will, still, and fill. So when you go to sleep tonight, when you lay your head on your pillow, say, tonight I will remember a dream or part of a dream. So you set the intention. And then when you wake up, whenever that is, in the middle of the night, in the morning, don't move. Just lie completely still. So mm-hmm. don't talk to anyone. Don't look at the time. Don't even wiggle your toes. As soon as you start to physically move, your dream imagery starts to fade away. So lie there completely still for as long as you can, usually just a few minutes. But in that few minutes, you will start to get some dream images coming back to you, something that you've dreamt during the night. And then there, and there's usually... Still images are just little snippets. Uh, But what you then do is you fill in the gaps between those still. And as you do so, you get a dream narrative emerging. Because you often have that in a dream. You think, so that was happening. And then, oh, just before that, then I was in this room and that was happening. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, that was, I was out in the street then. And, And so you have that whole narrative emerging. So will, still, and fill. And if you try it tonight, it might work when you wake up. But if you keep trying it over period of few it's usually a week to 10 days then you'll start to get some dream imagery coming back and then it becomes quite habitual that i indulge myself in the luxury every morning i'm just lying there still for about 10 minutes playing back some wonderful uh-huh. and the lucid dreaming part of it so again people view lucid dreaming as this really mystical phenomenon uh-huh. and and you have to go into this deep spiritual practice to learn how to do it and all sorts of things or you have to take various concoctions and herbs and potions and galamantine and all those sorts of stuff. But the reality is that just neurologically, when we sleep, we naturally lucid dream on two occasions. Uh, The first one is when we we go to sleep. And this one is usually a bit more challenging to work with because usually you just fall straight asleep out of it and go into your sleep cycle. But as you are lying in your bed tonight, falling asleep, there will be a moment, you'll be thinking about things that happened during the day, you'll be thinking, oh, I spoke to that psychologist, Ian in Scotland, that was quite interesting, and then, well, I wonder what I'll be doing tomorrow, and I'm going to meet so-and-so tomorrow, and I've got this call, and all these things. There will be a moment when an uncommanded image just pops into your mind. It could be anything, it could be a tree, a giraffe, a wheelbarrow, it could be anything. That is the moment you are literally falling asleep. It's a thing called a hypnagogic hallucination. And this period that you go through is called hypnagogia. And it's that liminal state between waking and dreaming. Uh, it was first described by uh, a Cypriot psychologist called Andreas Mavromatis back in 1985. The other side of it is when you wake up in the morning, as you're waking, you will similarly go through this hypnagogic phase, but you usually do it in a more relaxed fashion because you're waking up a bit more slowly than you do when you're falling asleep. And in those moments of waking, you can do the same sort of thing. So if you if you dream that, for example, you have that giraffe symbol in your dream, then you make the giraffe's neck shorter. You make the giraffe, you do a paisley pattern giraffe. You put the giraffe in Times Square. You put the giraffe in downtown LA. 
you just start playing around with the image. And then that giraffe is no longer a giraffe. It's your school teacher in elementary school. And then you think, oh, this is really interesting now because what you're doing is people think that lucid dream is about controlling your dream, but it's really about shaping and influencing it. In the same way in, in waking life, you can control some things, but the other things you feel you can't control, you can influence. So that's what you do in the dream. You think, right, so now I'm going to have a conversation with my ex-giraffe, now elementary school teacher. And I'm going to ask, just ask her a question, just what are you doing here? What do you need from me? And usually that part of yourself will speak back to you and you'll get some really interesting insight. So people can think your dreams can be really scary, but they can also be massively entertaining mm-hmm. because you can start engaging with all these 98% that unconscious part of yourself that you don't usually have the power to access. So that, that's how you do lucid dreaming. And I know it sounds quite simple and quite trite, but the more you do that every morning, then the more command you feel you have over the images you create and how you perceive those images. And that transfers again into waking life. You have far more command and power about how you perceive situations. And the probably the best way, and it, this sounds completely counterintuitive, the best way to learn to lucid dream is to do it from a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And very often, if clients often come to me with nightmares or troubled sleep, and we use the nightmare to teach them how to lucid dream. And the reason for that is it's not like some sort of boot camp or like full dream jacket thing that we're trying to do with them. What we're actually doing is in a nightmare, you very often become conscious that you're dreaming because you're trying to wake yourself up. So for example, if you have that recurring dream of the zombies that are trying to eat your brain and you can't communicate with them, there'll be a moment in that dream where you go, oh, this is horrible, I want to wake up. And you'll start to drift up from unconscious through that liminal area into waking consciousness. But in that moment, if you have the courage just to say to yourself, I'm just to hover here, I'm just to hover in mid-air, in mid-liminal area here, and just turn around to these faceless people, these faceless zombies, and say, who are you and what do you need? And again, in that moment, you're actively engaging lucidly with part of your unconscious self. So that is quite a simple and straightforward and very effective way to start working with lucid dreaming. And it's all sorts of dreaming processes, the more you do it, then the easier it becomes. So Mm -hmm. often in the morning when I'm having my 10 10 minutes of self-indulgence, I'll be saying, oh, it's a really interesting thing that happened there in that dream. And I'll slide back into that dream, just slip back into it and engage with the interesting part and then just generate a lucid dream from that and, and just find out what might have been going on there. And then I might park it and come back to another night. That's fascinating. And I love that you brought up nightmares. And it is so interesting that you use nightmares to teach people uh, about lucid dreaming. I have a couple of questions. First of all, nightmares, what happens in the brain during a nightmare? Again, um, just from a a misconception perspective, people often think that dreams and nightmares are separate things, Mm -hmm. like, like dreams and nightmares. But the reality is a nightmare is just a dream where you have turned up the volume a bit, you've turned up the scariness, you've turned up the vividness because you're trying to get your attention, because you're trying to get your attention about some powerful emotional situation that you are processing in your dreams, because that's what we do in dreams, are processing our emotions. And if you're trying to say, uh, for some reason, uh, you saw me walking down a street in my pink shirt and you, I, I hadn't seen you. And you're trying to 
get my attention. You might go, Ian, Ian, and then you go, Ian, Ian, and then be shouting louder and louder. Uh, but of course, you're very gracious, so you'd probably do it in a, a much more gracious way. But in doing that, that's exactly what a nightmare does, is it shouts louder and louder because you're trying to get your own attention. That there's some situation in your waking life that it's not a nightmarish situation. It's usually a situation where you have the opportunity to use your profounder power to take action, to do something that would be very useful for you and very fulfilling for you, but you're not attending to that. Uh, and very often we, we have these when um, we are in emotional situations in waking life. So you might be in something, and it might be quite a sad situation in waking life. It might be something that um, is full of tension that you're finding it really, really uncomfortable to deal with. But in the nightmare, what you're doing is saying, you're in this really uncomfortable, tense situation in waking life, but you have the power to resolve that situation. So in waking life, what would you do? How would you engage with it? Right. So the, the thing you would do in the lucid dream is, right, how am I perceiving this situation? What can I do to influence this? What can I do to shape this? Uh, and what you do in, in when you're working with lucid dreams is it's not a binary thing. It's not a digital thing where something is yes or no. It's just this lovely spectrum of where you go, right, I'll just try a little bit more of this and a little bit more of that, and I'll see what happens. So it's that feeling, because very often in waking life, we end up in these uh, nightmarish waking life situations because we are afraid of failure. We think that uh, if we do something, then it will reflect badly on us or other people will think that we're terrible or we won't be able to succeed with it. But the playwright Samuel Beckett had this wonderful epithet, which was, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. <laughs> and, and that's what we continually try to do when we are working with this lucid dreaming approach to nightmares or any difficult situation in our waking life. Rather than trying to be make this really decisive kind of heroic gesture, we just try, I won't just try influencing this a little bit, I'll influence it a little bit more, oh, it's a bit too much. It's like playing a musical instrument. It's like, right, how do we do this? Is this in tune? Is that out of tune? How do I fit into the situation? How can I do that? So we spend a lot of the time working with nightmares, just doing that, just adjusting them, just trying to see where we can influence, where we have power, and then use that in a way. That makes a lot of sense, Ian. And with regard to nightmares, there's also, I know people who suffer from night terrors. They deal with yes. very traumatic dreams that are reoccurring. And it's also tied in many cases to these individuals having actually experienced traumatic things in their life. How can this be approached, helped, or even healed? Yeah, so I've done quite a bit of work with service personnel who mm -hmm. have experienced severe PTSD. And uh, one of the, the, the challenges with this is a number of them who I have worked with are special forces personnel who are trained not to divulge any information. Mm. They are trained to be as invulnerable as possible. So it can be quite challenging to engage with them at that mental level. So it has to be done emotionally and spiritually. Mm. And in doing that, then they often have horrendous dreams of, of being back where they experienced this really, really traumatic event. So, so one of the, the, the first things to, to engage with, 
because they often say, I want this memory to be erased. And there are people trying to do that, putting electrodes on your head and zapping you and trying all sorts of things. And there are various medications that can be used. But again, it comes back to understanding that this is an emotional thing. It's absolutely packed with emotional imagery. So you have to engage with that image. And usually the first thing to do is to understand that you can't really erase that experience, but you can come to accept it and live with it. And so trying to hide it away, as you were talking about earlier on, Ariane, of just like pushing it into the shadow, like this, this huge, dark, monstrous shadow, you have to step back into that shadow and start working with parts of it. Uh, and very often in working with these service personnel, what they really wanted to have happen was someone to hear them. So when you have some traumatic battlefield experience, like most military experiences, you have to fill in a form. And that's it. You can fill in a form and sometimes you'll get a, a, a post-event or a post-conflict debriefing with someone, with a psychologist or psychiatrist. Uh, and then you might get um, six weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy. But those are all just band-aids. They're just all sticking plasters. What you really want is for someone just to hear you. Uh, so a, a lot of the work that I did as a psychologist and, and therapist in doing that was just listening. In an hour-long session, they might spin out to three or four hours. I would maybe speak for two or three minutes. And the rest of the time was just someone just reliving that experience, telling me about it. And then telling me about it, they're telling themselves. And the same thing happens in the dream. When you dream, you're telling yourself about something in your waking. And, and often in the dream, so some of the dreams might use some of the imagery from the traumatic experience. But very often the dreams were about something else in waking life, some kind of normality. A, a classic one is the children in jeopardy dream. And that's where the dreamer feels that their children are in some form of danger, some form of mortal danger, and they have to be rescued. And again, with this one, it, it comes back to the imagery. What, what does the child represent? Child is something that's very close to your heart. The child is a labor of love. The child is the fruits of your labor. So when you dream that your children are in jeopardy, there's some situation in waking life where something, it may be a work thing, it may be a social thing, it's usually a work or professional thing, something very close to your heart you feel is in jeopardy and you have to rescue. So a lot of the time when working with PTSD sufferers and experiencers, it's actually identifying these emotions, engaging with them, talking to these emotions, accepting them, and then realizing that you can move on from them. Because the the fundamental emotion experience. There are things that are around anger and guilt and shame, but the fundamental one is sad. And again, going back to language, our word sad and sadness comes from the same Latin root as being satisfied or satiated. You have quite literally had enough. Mm -hmm. You've had enough and it's time to move on. So if you're feeling sad because of some traumatic experience or feeling grief-stricken, you have to work out how to move on. And you can't just instantly move on like that you have to do it again feeling better step by step and try this step and try this step and try this step and just move on from it and it takes a while to heal but again if you feel that you're actively taking steps to move on from that sadness then you feel a little bit back in control you feel a little bit more powerful 
and those terrible experiences will still be part of you and a hugely powerful part of but then you can move on from them and just realize that you don't have to live that battle every mm-hmm. yes and i think that's uh, actually a key sentence you just said you don't have to live a battle every day so the way through is not the way through and to healing is engaging with it of course carefully but um actually encountering the emotions sitting with them and expressing yourself in whichever form may feel good and healthy for you with somebody such as you ian uh, who's of course has the uh, learning and the expertise to help somebody through that or finding ways to express oneself to let it out so it doesn't keep simmering inside of ourselves when we are filled up when we've had too much yeah that's exactly it and so things like journaling things like in peer groups other people who have had similar experiences or shared those experiences and the, the other thing that military personnel tend to do is particularly special forces personnel is compartmentalize these issues so i've had people saying oh, i'm getting in touch because i i am considering ending my life very shortly and just asking about their background and you know they have a loving spouse and they've got a number of children and then it's and it's the easiest thing as a human being or a psychologist or a therapist to say don't do that you've got a lovely life but that's not their reality and it's a lot more effective to ask a question to say something like can you tell me a little bit about the journey that's brought you to making this sort of decision because then it's not judgmental it's not saying don't do that what you're actually doing is saying tell me about what's going on for you and not just going to like talk to me or anything like that but just tell me about your journey tell me about the steps that you've that have taken you so far because once we know where you've come from and where you are now then we can understand where you might go because the essence of every human future expectation and experience is built upon that triangle of where are you now where have you been because that's the base of your triangle and then the next thing you do is triangulate about where you want to go mm-hmm. and uh, also helping people see that where they can go is not necessarily does not necessarily mean it's going to be the same place or worse than where they have been yeah i'm a huge believer in choice mm-hmm. about saying to the person where where do you want to go and 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 again in waking life we always think we have far less choice than we actually do and we always think we have far less power yeah. than we actually do i i do a lot of work as a corporate psychologist and again i'll be in uh, an executive boardroom full of c suite executives and they'll be talking about some decision to be made or some issue to be resolved they will all feel powerless and i will say who is the power to make that decision and no one no one engage but the power is always in that room yeah. and the power is always inside us we have the power and we have the choice we have that agency to do something and, and a lot of working with people or hide helping people or guiding people is about helping them connect and engage with that feeling of agency that it can be a tiny little thing that they do but in doing that tiny little thing because the first step is always the hardest in any journey just making that effort to make the first step and it's the it's, again it's a very common dream being stuck in mud yes. or being stuck in some thick yes. viscous fluid and usually in that dream is you feel that your feet are stuck in mud 
but you're leaning forward. And part of that is to get you moving. But that leaning forward at an angle, your feet are down here and your head's up here. And it suggests that your thoughts are ahead of your actions, that you're thinking of all these things in the future and you're idealizing them. But to get there, you have to take that first step. And the first step is always the hugest effort. Mm. But once you take that first step, you gain some momentum. And the next step's not so hard. And the step after that is even easier. And before you know it, you're running and flying. Wonderful. And agency, again, another key word. I think we are uh, the kind of times we're living in. Everything seems to bombard us, telling us we don't have power. We don't have agency, whether it's uh, global events, catastrophes, wars, whether it's in our daily lives. I think a, a lot of, not to be conspiracy theorist here, but a lot of the ways that everything is run is seems dedicated to make us feel small instead of helping us to feel empowered. And uh, so to help people get that sense of agency back is such a wonderful thing. And it seems to me like being able to analyze, to decipher our dreams and put them into action is also a fantastic tool to just giving us more of this sense of self empowerment yeah absolutely and and that's so the idea of working with your dreams and just thinking if you can influence your dreams and have power and agency in them in the nightly phenomena dreams then you can do that with your dreams in waking life mm -hmm. uh, and in doing that just that and it can just be a tiny little thing but then you think about the the choices you make in life and a lot of those can be habitual that you just mm -hmm. do those things because that's what you've always done and it is quite easy to do things habitually because it frees up some brain capacity. But sometimes it's just nice to think, right, I'm just going to do this differently. I'm going to go a different way today. Or I will eat something different today. Or I will, I'm usually afraid of speaking up. But today I will speak up quite gently, quite graciously. But today I will speak up a little bit and see what happens. And quite often when you do that, you realize that things do happen, the things that you want to happen do happen Absolutely. just because yeah you had that courage and not a huge amount of courage to do it just a little bit just shake, yeah just shake things up a little bit it could be as simple as if you're not already doing it i am not <laughs> but it could be as simple as taking a cold shower to get outside of that comfort zone get outside of that zone of habit which we also like to stay in because we feel safe there our brain knows the habitual life that we lead, it feels safe there. We survive. There's nothing strange coming at it, which might throw life-threatening experiences in our way. But even small things like taking a cold shower, getting out of that comfort zone gives you back this sense of agency. And wow, you might just feel so amazing after <laughs> physically, psychologically, that the day unfolds completely differently. And speaking of cold showers, Ian, I'd love to know, it's a question I ask every guest, are there certain practices? that you have um, had in your life for a longer period of time, or maybe even newly discovered ones that have enhanced you mentally, physically, or spiritually, and that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. So I'm just thinking what I might have there. So um, dreaming, obviously, that I spend a lot of time doing that two hours per night, and then 10, 15 minutes in the morning. In terms of what I do in terms of practices so I, I don't really have any uh spiritual practices as such i uh, love to spend time in nature so i i do a lot of that i go 
hiking and walking, cycling and running. I'm intensely curious. And some people just say I've got a short attention span, but I'm absolutely fascinated by human nature and why we do the things we do. So I, I do things where I quite often where I enter what Mihahi sees in Mihahi called a flow state and the kind of work that Stephen Kotler at the Flow Genome has been carrying on now, where I get utterly absorbed in a particular activity uh, and doing that. But I, I guess the main practice I have is, apart from going out in nature, is I ask people questions and not in an interrogative sort of way, not in an interrogative sort of way, but just out of genuine interest. So I often end up just interviewing people. That I'll meet someone in the street or I'll be in the supermarket and I'll be at the checkout and I'll be start asking the the very helpful person, checking out all my groceries, start finding out how you're getting on today and what's going on. And, and before you know it, you have the person's life story. Mm-hmm. And it's just picking up on that little sort of detail, something that makes me curious about that person. I, I was out for a walk recently, two days ago, to briefly share this, but I, there uh, are, it's a lovely beach forest just to the north of my house here. And beyond that, there's a field where people often walk their dogs from a neighbouring area. And I, I was going up there and this quite elderly gentleman was coming up this steep incline with his dog. And I noticed he had this uh, sweatshirt on with his band name on it. And this band was very popular in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s. So I commented on it and then it spent about half an hour standing in this field because his, it was his son's sweatshirt and his son uh, had been to this gig about 30 years ago where I had been playing in a support band there. And so just that, that whole, we were talking about prophetic things and precognitive things and synchronistic things, but just that asking of questions in, and then immersing myself in someone else's unconscious life. I guess that's the main practice that I have. Beautiful. I love that. This was an absolutely delightful and insightful conversation, Ian. Thank you so much. For people who would like to learn more about you, where can they find you or reach out to you? Yeah, I have a website at ianwallacedreams.com. So there's lots and lots of information. There's about 400 pages about information about dreams. There's lots of uh, podcasts and TV and radio interviews. And one of the things you can learn from there, I guess, and pick up from, become more familiar with is uh, people often say, how, how can I work with my own dreams? And I will say the best person to work with your dreams is, is not me, but yourself, because you are the author of your, just um, maybe viewing or listening to some of those podcasts and interviews, you'll see like uh, how we've been doing this one, Ariana, how we just work our way through a dream. So yeah, so ianwallsdreams.com. I'm not very active in social media. I don't really do a whole lot of that, Uh, but I do have uh, currently three books. So uh, self-promotion time. Uh, So this one is in um, English as well, an English-American. It's in 14 or 15 languages, the top 100 dreams from Le Psychologue des Rêves. There's this one, which is my most recent one that came out this year, which is called Decode Your Dreams. Uh, and this one's a bit more visual. It's got a few more images in it, but and it's all quite brief as well. It's just fairly short things, but this is all you need to dive in and if it goes into focus or not. <laughs> it's becoming very dreamlike. It's become very hazy there. Going Catch in and out of focus. I can read it. Yeah, so that's a very nice one. And then if you want to work with imagery, 
then about eight years ago, this one was published and it has 12,000 dream images in it. And it's and again, I say this very biased manner, but I think it's the best contemporary dream dictionary. And the way to work with this, there's a description at the start of what I call the dream connection process. And the way that works very briefly is you identify the dream image and then you form it into a question. And you ask yourself that question to put the dream into action. So the format of the book, there are 12,000 images, and each entry is a small, short 20-word description of what that means spiritually and emotionally. Mm -hmm. So that's what it looks like inside. So then you just take one of those things and you would just form that into a question. Uh, so that's that's what I would recommend. So emailsdreams.com, those three books, it's a good place to start. But the, the key thing to do is to realize that the dream is the ultimate self-portrait. A dream is just a dream until we put it into action. Don't be scared of your dreams. They are the greatest gift that humanity can offer. I concur with that. And thank you for the gifts you bring into this world by helping us decipher them and by helping making, helping using these dreams, which we are the author of, to also become more empowered authors of our own life. Ian, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Ariana. It's been an absolute delight. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. <laughs>